here tonight. Very excited to continue with you in the book of Ephesians. We've had part one of this study last month, and I'm, I've really enjoyed digging into the book of Ephesians, and the more I dig into it, the more I realize this could be almost a never-ending series. I'm not going to do that and uh, put, put that upon you as a burden, as a congregation, but there's a lot of information to unpack in the book of Ephesians, and uh, I've really benefited a lot from this. The song we just sang, I, I asked uh, that to be led tonight. If, if you notice the little scripture reference at the top of that, you're going to find Ephesians chapter 1. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, a prayer for enlightenment that the Apostle Paul has for the church at Ephesus. We talked last time in, in brief about the book of Ephesians. Justin, could you advance my first slide for me? This thing's stopped working. We talked about how the book of Ephesians is not a... Uh, a, a typical letter from Paul in that he's addressing a particular sin problem. He's not addressing a particular doctrinal error that they might have, but rather he is, I hope we have a presentation tonight, rather what he is doing is he's addressing Christianity in general. There we go. And so he talks about the first part of the book of Ephesians about uh, sort of theory and concept when it comes to Christianity. And he talks a lot about the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And we find this verse in Ephesians 1 and 3 that we talked about last time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the sort of the second thesis statement, if you will, of the book of Ephesians happens in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so we're talking about theory and then application. What are these blessings, these things that God has done for us, what kind of people does that cause us to want to be? How do we react to that? What is our response? And so we talked the first time about how he praised God for the blessings that we have in Christ with spiritual blessings. They're not physical, earthly blessings, but spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We're going to come back to that phrase, heavenly places, tonight and talk about that some more. Specific blessings that are found in Christ, we noticed that there included the work of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So God in his entirety is at work in these blessings. And then the reason for that is that we would be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory and all things would be gathered into Christ. And so having just laid out all of these blessings that are found in Jesus Christ and a brief but rather comprehensive list of blessings, Paul is going to turn that into a prayer for the church at Ephesus. And so he talks about this in verse number 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul's inspired knowledge of the blessings that are found in Jesus, coupled with a couple of other things, are inspiring him to say this prayer. And so here's what he says. For this reason, in other words, because of the blessings that we just talked about. I think the New King James says, therefore, so we've talked about it a lot lately, therefore means before, because of all of these blessings. And he said, also because I've heard of your faith in Jesus and your love toward all the saints, those two items coupled together have caused me to remember you in my prayers. And he says, I do that. I don't cease to give thanks for you, he says. I remember you in my prayers. So this motivated Paul to pray for them. Now, I like the fact that Paul, he's about to tell them what he prays for. And, you know, when you read a lot of Paul's letters, especially to, you know, obviously the churches like Ephesus and Colossians, what you're going to find 
is that he's saying this type of thing a lot. You read it when he writes to Timothy. You read it when he, he's always saying, I thank God for you. I remember you in my prayers. I'm always praying for you. And if there's one thing I think we can take away from that, I'm not a big fan of this term prayer warrior. I think it's a little hyperbolic. I'm not really sure. But Paul was, in fact, a prayer warrior. He must have prayed constantly. He had all these congregations under his care, and he was praying for all of them. And then he goes about praying for individuals. He says in all his letters, I pray for this individual. I pray for that individual. He was praying all the time. And I love the fact that he's about to get specific. You know, we talk a lot about prayer. And Justin briefly touched on this on Sunday when he talked about how you'll see maybe on a social media post that somebody is asking for prayers, and you just see 50 comments that say praying. And not to take away from that, not to say those people aren't sincere in that, not that they're not praying, but don't we really like to hear when people say, I'm praying for you, and then I'm praying for you in this very specific way. I want to thank Brother Danny tonight in his prayer for praying for Carrie and I as, as elders of this congregation. That means more than you can possibly know every time I hear that. I love hearing it prayed, but I also love it when people say, I'm praying for you. I know the decisions you're having to make right now are difficult. I'm praying that God will give you wisdom. Those are the kind of prayers we like to hear, and I think we need to be very specific in our prayer life. And I think that's going to benefit us as the person praying as well as the person who knows that we're praying for them in that way. So he says, I want to pray that God would give you a spirit of something. And that word spirit means more of an attitude. I want God to give you a spirit or an attitude, number one, of wisdom. Now, we could do a word study on wisdom tonight, but I think we all kind of understand what wisdom is, right? It's not just simply being smart or having knowledge, but rather it's taking our knowledge and applying it to the experience that we've gained in our lives and using that in a skillful manner, using being wise in the decisions that we make based on our knowledge and experience. He says, also, I want God to give you a spirit of revelation. Now, when we see the word revelation, we tend to think of things that are mystical or maybe hard to understand or maybe miraculous. We're not talking about the book of Revelation in the sense that there's a lot of of word imagery and uh, symbols and things like that. But rather, we're talking about simply a revealing of knowledge. That's what the word revelation means, to revealing information or a laying bare of information, a disclosure of truth. And not that Paul is revealing anything new to these Christians, but what he's telling them is, I want you to have hearts and minds that are open and ready to receive God's word and ready to receive knowledge, wisdom, and be open to thinking about things in a way that you've never thought about them before, to letting them grow in you and becoming meaning more to you the more you hear it. So he wants them to have that, and he says, I want you to have knowledge. Now, not just any knowledge, not just general knowledge. You know, there's a lot of useful knowledge out in this world. There's a lot of smart people in this room tonight, a lot of different careers. There's people who know all about teeth, uh, automotive repair, electricity, uh, all kinds of engineering how to teach people. I don't know how to do any of those things. I know just enough about computers to get the job done. You know, but that's all useful information, and that information is not wrong to have or to use. There's a lot of useless information out there, too. Some of you in this room can name the last seven starting quarterbacks of the Dallas Cowboys. I can't, I can't do that. Some people can, can quote the opening crawl from the original Star Wars movie from memory. Guilty as charged. That's not very useful, is it? That doesn't profit anybody except, you know, it's a a cool trick at a party maybe. 
Paul says, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the kind of knowledge we want to have. Knowledge according to Christ. And what you're going to see with this prayer that Paul prays, that he tells them about, is he's drilling deeper and deeper and deeper, and he's getting more and more detailed as he goes along. He says, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom, and not just a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of God, and not just the knowledge of God, but specific knowledge, and knowledge that is specific is based in something, and he goes deeper and deeper, and as we see that he goes deeper and deeper, God is lifted higher and higher and higher, and our own view of him is magnified, and our own view of self is taken down lower and lower and lower, just as it should be. So he says, I want you to have a knowledge of God. So he said, this is what I want you to know. I want you to have enlightenment. And that's why I asked that song to be led tonight. If you looked at the scripture reference on that song, it again referenced this passage. Open the eyes of my heart. He says, I want having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And that's what that song says. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. To see you for who you really are. To know what your power is and your might. We're going to talk about all those things tonight. That comes directly from this passage of Scripture. We sing another song, Open my heart to what you know. Open my eyes to what you see. Open my ears to what you hear. That's what Paul is praying for for these people. I used to have a... When I first got into the IT business, my very first boss that I had, he would take me out on jobs. And he was a... a, an expert, if you will, in something called Novell Netware. It's not even around anymore, as far as I know. First big name in computer networking. We didn't even know what networking was back then. That was before the internet really hit it big. And he got into this, and he learned it. He went and he took, his, he took the classes, and he took the tests, and he passed the tests. He got his certifications. And he told me, he said, I knew all the facts and figures, and I could tell you how things work. He said, but I was out on a job one day after getting a little experience. And he said, all that knowledge that I had, with all the experience that I had gained, somehow came together one day. In one particular moment, he said, everything fell into place for me. It all just made sense. I got it. It was that light bulb moment. Aha, I finally get it. I finally get what it's talking about. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus that they will have that kind of a moment. That Their heart will be open to truths that they've never considered before. In Acts chapter 26, we're not going to read this entire passage, but this is Paul's account of his own conversion. And as Jesus appears to him and and Paul says, Lord, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He says, I've got a mission for you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Look at what he says in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Talk about praying according to God's will. This is literally God's will. Jesus spoke this directly to Paul. I want you to go open their eyes, and Paul is praying for that very thing. So he says, I want you to know something. There's something I want you to know. There's three things he lists here. Number one, he says, I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope is a pretty powerful word for us as Christians. It means a lot for us. We have a hope that no one else in the world can understand. Our hope in Jesus, our hope of salvation and eternal life. You know, that's what starts our journey 
of faith, isn't it? We begin to look at our own selves in the mirror of the Scriptures of who God is and who I am and, know, and realize my hopeless state without Christ. I realize I have no hope. And so I put my hope and my faith in Christ. That's what begins our journey. But, you know, that should not only be the impetus of our journey in faith, but it should propel us forward in that as well. And Paul is telling him, I want you to know about the hope to which you were called. It's not a one-and-done thing, just like the gospel itself is not one-and-done, but rather continue to cling to that hope. Cling to the hope that is found in Christ. Notice the similarities between Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. He, pe- he prays almost exactly the same verbiage here. He says in verse number 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So we'll see what he's saying here. He's saying the same thing. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for the saints. Exactly what he told the church at Ephesus. But he's given us a source here. And he says, because of the hope laid up for you. That is what generated their faith. That is what generated their love. And he said it was based in the word of the truth, the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to Jesus Christ. That is where our faith is. And Paul is telling them, I want you to hold on to that. Constantly remember that hope. It's not just the beginning of your faith, but it should follow you all through your journey of faith, if you will. Number two, he says, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last time we talked about our inheritance. Verses 11 and 14 of Ephesians 1 talk about our inheritance. As Danny prayed tonight, us being co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ. We share in the blessing of his sonship and we become adopted heirs and receive an inheritance that one day will be fully revealed in our home in heaven. But he's turning the coin over here. Not only do we have a a glorious inheritance waiting for us, but he says God has a glorious inheritance. And he says it's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God considers the saints, that's you and me, he considers us a glorious inheritance. And it's not just any inheritance. It's not like inheriting, you know, some old, uh, you know, rusty tractor that will never work again from your, you know, third uncle or whatever it is. It's a glorious inheritance. There's riches founded. It has value. Does it surprise you that God considers you to be a glorious inheritance? That may seem like a little bit of a foreign concept to us. You know, we are of great value to God. The Scriptures tell us that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says, What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to what he says here. He who did not spare his own son... We gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do you know if something's valuable? How do we, how do we place value on things? It's what we're willing to, to give for it, what we're willing to pay for it. If something's of great value to you, you're willing to do almost anything to get it. Are we of great value to God? Does he consider us to be a glorious inheritance? Yes. How do I know? Because he gave everything. The modern parlance is he didn't spare any expense. He was willing to give his own son to a wretched sinner like me. Someone who was, in essence, his enemy. 
And he was willing to give his son. And his point is, if he was willing to do that, how much now, with us being joint heirs with Christ, how much more is he willing to give us? All things. Paul says, I want you to know that. And number three, he says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe. Let's just take a minute to appreciate this word immeasurable. How do you illustrate that? I had a conversation with David the other night. He had some ideas for me. And sorry, David, I'm not going to take your suggestion. <laughs> we can talk about it later if anybody wants it. It's a really good suggestion. But you know, I got to thinking about how do you, immeasurable, you can't put a number on it. You can't quantify it. You can't say it's this long, it's this wide, it's this high. Or come up with a list of this immeasurable greatness of his power. It's immeasurably great. You can't quantify it. But notice what he says. It's a power that God has directed toward us who believe. It's, we understand and talk about all the time about God's power. But God has directed towards us who believe an immeasurably great amount of power. You know, when God talked to Abraham and made the promise that he would make of him a great nation, Abraham had a hard time believing that at first a little bit. God, I don't have an heir. How's this going to happen? He even tried to help God out a little bit. You know, God took Abraham outside his tent, and he said, look up at the night sky. You see all those stars up there? Count them if you can. That's going to be your descendants. What Abraham, did he look up and go, one, two, three? No, of course not. Because you can't count the stars. Space, the universe, is a vast, endless void full of billions and billions, trillions, dare I say, stars. Now, there's some hotshot scientists out there that think they probably know how many stars are in our galaxy or in the universe. They don't know. How could they know? It's endless. There's not a telescope that reaches that far because the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what it means to be immeasurable, and that is the kind of power that God has directed towards us. But now he's going to drill even deeper. These are the things he wants him to know, our hope, to which he has called us, the riches of his glory to Harrison and the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe. But it goes even deeper than this. This is another verse. I told Justin, there's like two slides on here where I keep forgetting I've got this verse I'm going to mention. I'm just full disclosure tonight. But this verse in Ephesians chapter 3 says exactly the same thing. Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And he's tying that together according to the power at work within us. So down here he's saying the power is directed towards us. And here he's saying it's already at work within us. The power that he's given us is already at work. It's not some future thing in the next life, but it's already at work within us. Now this uh, phrase that we talked about here, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe, according to the working of his mind. That, that, that power is according to something. What is it according to? Well, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. You know, power has a source. I, I said earlier, there are people in this room who know electricity, and I'm not one of them. I know I turn on a light switch and the light comes on. If it doesn't come on, I check the light bulb. If, after that, I'm kind of clueless. I know there's a big box on the side of this building where all of our electricity comes through, but that's not the source of that power. That runs along all kinds of crazy stuff until eventually you get to some sort of power plant, whether it runs on coal or natural gas or water or wind, whatever the case may be, the power has a source. 
And this immeasurably great power that God has directed toward us who believe has a source. And it's based in the work that he worked in Christ. And now you see we're coming full circle to this concept. Last time we talked about the blessings that are in Christ and how many times he said the, the phrase in Christ or in him or in the beloved over and over and over. And that's what we're coming back to. So the great work he worked in Christ when he, first of all, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So first of all, there are, again, three areas here. First of all, Christ's resurrection and exaltation. Now, this could be broken up into two sections if we wanted to, but these two things are almost inseparable. The resurrection of Jesus is a, is a fulcrum. You know, like on a lever, you've got the fulcrum, and then everything sort of rests on that. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum on which our faith and hope rest. Without the resurrection, it all kind of falls apart. Paul told the church at Corinth, you know, if, if only in this life alone we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. If there's no resurrection, it all falls apart. There's, this is all pointless. And so without the resurrection of Jesus, without his exaltation to the throne of God, it all falls apart. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, Concerning his son, that's Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and listen, was declared to be the Son of God. With what? With power. According to the Spirit of His holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, this says. You can trace the lineage of Christ in the flesh from Joseph and Mary back to David, even even further back than that. So that's not in dispute. That makes him the heir of David, if you will, but what was it that made him the Son of God? It didn't make him the Son of God, but rather declared him to be the Son of God, and that was his resurrection from the dead. And he goes on to say in Romans 8, verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and listen, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the key point of this. Christ's work on the cross was crucial. His redemptive work there in atoning for our sins, paying the price of our sins, God's wrath poured out upon him on that cross for the sins of the world. It had to happen. The price had to be paid. But if that's the end of the story, then we have no hope. But the resurrection declares him to be the Son of God. And his exaltation to the right hand of God is critical for us because that is where he makes intercession for us. And now Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for you. That means he stands between me and God. He knows what it's like to be God. He knows what it's like to be me. And he's there making intercession. And Paul said, I want you to know the power in that. The power that gives you. The power to be the sons of God, the children of God. We talked about this phrase, heavenly places, in verse number three of this chapter. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And last time I was a little bit vague, not intentionally, just because we were trying to get through this very quickly. There are some opinions out there that, well, heavenly places means the church. Heavenly places means the spiritual realm. 
But what Paul does here is he makes a connection with that. So what is heavenly? What does it mean that we have blessings in Christ in heavenly places? Well, he repeats it down here. The work that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What does this tell us? He's making connection here, and he said, these blessings that we have in Christ, they're found in Christ, and the power behind that is the fact that they were based in the heavenly places, where what? Where he was exalted to the throne of God. So the blessings that we have are contingent, and the power in them is found in the fact that God put Jesus at his right hand. Paul said, I want you to know that. Second of all, he said the power is based in the fact that Christ is placed far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Christ's authority over all things. When he was resurrected and when he was exalted, placed at God's right hand, God gave him ultimate authority. What's the phrase that the kids like? Phenomenal cosmic power? That's what Jesus has, and then some. In a real big living space, by the way, for those of you who get the reference. Jesus has ultimate. What does that mean? All of these things he has listed here. Rule. This word has a connotation of beginnings and origins, the first in a series. A lot of times in the New Testament, it's translated as beginnings. Jesus is first above all other firsts. Authority means the power of choice, the liberty to do as he pleases. It's indutability or strength, influence, privilege. Jesus has ultimate authority. He can do whatever he wants to do. He has ultimate power, work, might, strength, inherent power. Just because of who he is, by his very nature, Jesus has ultimate power and strength. And finally, he says dominion, power, lordship. One who, we're talking about a governor. Jesus is the Lord of the lords, king of kings. He's the ultimate governor. And above every name, name above all names, There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. And so Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God, God gave him all this. In Daniel chapter 7, he talked about it. I saw in the light visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus Christ has. Setting Christ at his right hand, God the Father has granted him unlimited power and authority. What does that mean for you and I? Finally, he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're talking now about Christ's headship of the church. I know we talk about this all the time, but what does it mean that Christ has headship of the church? Well, first of all, the first aspect that he's talking about here is authority. All things under his feet. He's head over all things. That means he's the man in charge. That means he makes all the decisions. That means we just talked about what authority and power and all that means. All that applies to the church, too. In matters of doctrine, organization, worship, moral standards, Jesus is the first and the final say on everything that has anything to do with the church. 
And any authority that we have is simply delegated authority because it all comes from, he's the head. What does the head do? My head, as feeble and silly and not smart as it is sometimes, controls my body. It tells me what to do. It tells me what to say. It tells me what to think. That's what a head does. And that's what it means that Christ is head of the church and head of his body. But there's another aspect here. This verse in Colossians chapter 118 talks about that he might be preeminent. That means he's first. Again, that word preeminent talks about him being first in all things. The head, everything he might be preeminent. I got behind on my slides a little bit, sorry. Next he says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is his body. What does this mean, the fullness of him? What does it mean that the church is the fullness of of Christ. I wrestled with this for a little while, and there's a lot of ideas out there. A lot of commentators kind of agree that it's a little difficult to kind of wrap your head around what he's saying here. But the more I study it, the more I think it becomes simple. Some people say, well, Christ is the head, the church is the body, and what is a head without a body? So therefore, we as the church sort of complete the body of Christ, and, and so we become his fullness because we help complete the body I kind of see where that's going, but I don't think that's really what he's talking about here. The fullness of him who fills all in all, and I think this is the key in understanding this. Jesus fills all in all. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about this some more. I believe this is very directly related to what we're talking about. In verse 15, he says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So again, we see Christ is centered here. It's all about being in Christ and being around him. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice how everything here points to Christ. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. From whom the whole body, from whom from Christ, so from, from Christ the whole body joined and held together. You see this concept of him filling all in all, how that's working? We're growing up into him. He's filling each of us individually, and he's filling us all collectively as well. Joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. What is it that makes the body grow? It's Christ. Christ is the one who fills all in all. It all comes back to Christ. And so we, the church, are the fullness of Christ because it is Christ that fills us. He fills us individually. We grow into him individually. We learn more about him. We love him more. We follow him more. We imitate him more. We become more like him, and so we're growing up in him. And then when we do that as a group, we become way more than the sum of our parts. And we're growing up together in every heart is working properly, that makes the body grow, and we become the fullness of him who fills all in all. As we consider Paul's prayer in sort of its entirety, what kind of person does that make you want to be? What does it make you want to do? What does it make you want to say? What does it make you want to talk about? Paul says, we have all these blessings in Jesus Christ. And I know of your faith, and I know of your love toward the saints. And I remember you always in my prayers, and I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, that he would open the eyes of your heart, that he would enlighten you 
to information that would keep you on the track that you need to be on. I want you to know and remember the hope to which He's called you. I want you to know that you're of great value to God and that you are His glorious inheritance and He considers that inheritance to be of great value to Him. And He's given everything for that inheritance. He's invested everything in the saints. I want you to know about an immeasurably great amount of power that God has extended toward us and that is now at work at us in the church, those who believe. And it's all based. It's all according to the power. This working, this great might, this mighty work that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and exalted him to his throne in the heavenly places. And he gave him all power, all rule, all authority. And he gave him his head over the church and he fills the church in every way possible that we need. How does that make you feel? Does that in any way enlighten your heart? Does it open the eyes of your heart at all to thinking about this in ways that maybe you never have? Because what Paul has done through this whole progression that goes deeper and deeper and deeper into theology, what it has done is raised Christ higher and higher and higher And I look at myself and I go lower and lower and lower until we finally realize why the writer wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because only by God's grace can someone as low as me reach the heights that he has taken me. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, we read this passage all the time. I don't know how many thousands of times I've read this verse or had it read. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We just talked about that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How many times have we read that? I hope this phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I hope that maybe has a special meaning to you tonight at least with what we've talked about. Because I don't believe what Jesus is saying here is, listen, I'm the head cheese. And what I say goes. And I'm telling you people, you go and do what I tell you to do because I said so. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm about to ascend to my Father and sit at His right hand fully man and fully God. And I'm going to be there and make intercession for you. The price for your sins has been paid. And I'm going to stand in between you and God until the end of time. And I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father. Jesus is telling them, I'm the only way to the Father. That's it. There's no other way. Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go therefore and teach them to observe all things. Go. Go to the lost. Go to your friends. Go to your families and take me with you because I'm the only way. This kind of knowledge, this sort of enlightenment, I hope what it can do for us is is continually inspire us, again, not in any miraculous way, but to the knowledge that just continues to build and our love for Christ continues to build, our faith continues to build until it all just explodes and splatters out on all of our friends and family. That's what it should do. That's the point of all this. 
That's why he's trying to encourage the church at Ephesus. Whatever your problems are, whatever you're facing in this life, you know, there's people in this room tonight, there are people in here who experience chronic pain. I have no idea what that's like. Never experienced it. Jesus knows. There are people in this room that struggle with sin. Jesus was tempted at all points as we are yet without sin. He knows. Whatever we face in life, we can overcome it through the immeasurable power that God has given us in Jesus Christ. If you've not been baptized into Christ, if you've never obeyed the gospel and become a part of that family, become a joint heir with Christ, I hope that something we've said tonight can convince you that that is what you need to do right now. Don't wait a moment longer. If you need the prayers of the church for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.